All right. Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning to you. You okay? Good. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you got them. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Again, we welcome you to Citadel Square. We're here uh, so that every single person who comes in those back doors might know what it means to take the next step or first step, really, with Jesus Christ and what it means to grow in maturity with him. So that's our goal as a church. You'll hear us use that language from time to time to talk about taking your next step. We believe that no matter where you are, whether you're eight or whether you're 80, you've got a next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here to serve and to help uh, to that end. So we uh, are in our study of 2 Corinthians. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, turn to 2 Corinthians. And we're gonna be in chapter five is where we'll be here this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter five. Uh, Last week, Paul uh, finished in the first 10 verses of this chapter talking about two major horizons in life where we ought to set our eyes as we consider uh, our time on earth. One is that one day we all will die. In 100 years, none of us will be in this room. We will all be elsewhere. And Paul said, you are meant to live with that reality in mind that one day this fleshly body will go into the ground And one day God will give you a heavenly, eternal, resurrected, restored, and renewed body. That's meant to to capture our attention as we live uh, life in this body. And the second great horizon that Paul pointed us to at uh, at the end of our time last week was the fact that one day we will face judgment. We will face a time where we stand before Jesus Christ. Romans says that we all must appear before the seat to receive what is due for what we've done in the body. So there will be one great judgment day where we will receive back, we will be paid back for the good deeds that we have done in Jesus' name and for his sake. So those two realities, future judgment and our future resurrection body, was where Paul had spent time in our thinking. Well, he's going to pivot and come back to something really that he's stepped away from for about three chapters. If you turn back from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, into 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and you'll see him ask this question that really has uh, captured our attention over the past two or three chapters, where he's been dealing with his relationship with the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? That's been the main tension in Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church has these individuals, these influential leaders that infiltrate the church and try to draw the Corinthian church's attention and affection and love away from Paul, this apostle who has brought them the very message of salvation. Well, we return to that theme, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me, and we return to that theme here today. And while Paul's gaze has been toward Christ and the glorious realities of the new covenant covenant, uh, in comparison to the old covenant that gives him boldness, no, now he doesn't lose heart, he is not timid, he continues to preach this gospel message that secures a certain future eternal reality for us, we're going to come back and deal with uh, something that is a relational component in our uh, spiritual lives. It's perhaps the most explicit treatment of our relationship with God and what Christ has done to affect that relationship with God. So as we begin, I want you to consider this question. Is your relationship with God in a good place? 
If someone were to stop you on the street and say, how is your relationship with the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land? Where do you and him sit in relationship with each other? How do you know? Has God left us in that question to sort of navigate our lives in the emotional roller coaster of our assessment of our spiritual lives? To where on Tuesday, I'm doing pretty good. I've done two or three really good things. But on Thursday, I'm really struggling again with this sin pattern that seems to constantly harass me. Are we left to answering that question on our own terms? Or does God give us any input, any information, any insight as to where we stand in relationship with God? And this passage answers that question for you. In fact, it paints such a glorious and beautiful reality that by the end of our time together here today, you're going to find out that you can answer that question with absolute certainty and confidence as to where you stand with the God of heaven and earth. Isn't that good news? That you could leave this place today reminded of where you stand and that you can have confidence as you go to work, where somebody would ask you, how in the world do you know you and, good or, you and God are on good terms? How in the world do you have the confidence that you will spend eternity in the presence of God in heaven? You have the audacity to tell me that you have absolute conviction and certainty. And a Christian can say, yes. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about. You with me? So this text is so important for the church. This text is so important for Paul and the Corinthians' relationship. Paul's going to come back to something here in their relationship where he's going to say, this is so essential to where you stand with God himself. So that's what this text is all about. Pray with me, and we'll jump into it here. Father in heaven, for these few minutes... As we look into your word and see some things about you that uh, no doubt, Father, I need to be reminded of, we all need to be reminded of. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here together in a few minutes, we pray that the word of God would penetrate into the recesses of our heart where maybe we're discouraged in our relationship with you. Maybe we're uncertain. Maybe we're wobbly and we don't really know where we stand with you. We don't know whether or not we are welcomed in our prayers. We don't know if heaven is open to us. We don't know where we stand. And Father, for all that are in this room here today, I pray that they would uh, receive the truth of this passage in the deepest parts of their heart. That because of Christ, we would know that we are welcomed and loved and adopted and reconciled and made right with you. So, Father, we pray that your word would give light to our eyes as we look into it here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Y'all there? Good. Okay, don't matter. I'm there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, now therefore follows all of what Paul has said up to this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right? You've got a future, eternal, resurrection body kept in heaven for you that God has promised to you, God will give to you, God will raise you one day, and you will be brand new all the way through, spirit and body. Right? 
Number two, you will see Jesus face to face. You, your deeds in this body will be judged by Jesus' penetrating gaze where he will evaluate every thought, every word, every deed, every motive. All of it will be laid bare before Jesus Christ. Amen? Therefore. Now, should those realities cause me to live a certain way? I presume in Paul's line of reasoning that he has a therefore there for a reason. That that reality in the beginning of chapter 5 ought to shape the kinds of conversations Paul has with this church, the kind of life that Paul is calling them to live, the kind of life, in fact, that Paul chooses to live. Look at what he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Do those two realities cause you to uh, uh, approach your spiritual life with a little bit of uh, sobriety? What do you think? Wouldn't those realities of a future resurrection the way I consider that my body is breaking down and I long for a new heavenly and eternal body and the fact that I will be judged cause you to live in light of the fear of the Lord. That's Paul's point. Because Paul knows and understands the fear of the Lord, that means I live my life with my eyes and respect on the fact that God will judge me one day. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So the first motive in Paul's ministry mission is the fear of the Lord. Christians, as we talk with our family and friends and uh, workplace and classmates and all of those things, we have to reckon with the fact that we will not be here forever, that there is coming judgment day for all of us, and therefore that fear of the Lord ought to motivate our concern for the people who are around us. So much so that we are trying to persuade them to move and put their faith not in themselves, but on God who raises the dead. What do we want for every single person who encounters the ministry of Citadel Square, who encounters the members of Citadel Square? That these members and this church might be the place where we long to help you, persuade you, urge you, exhort you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your eternity. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. I hope that my ministry is done with God's eyes on me. My awareness that everything that I do as an apostle is under his gaze. And my desire is what he said back in chapter four is that we might live, our aim and ambition is to live a life that is pleasing to him. And number two, Paul says that we want to testify in such a way that your conscience says yes and amen. These are valid messengers. These are apostles of Jesus Christ. These are people that we can trust so that when they preach the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, that our consciences come alive. Christians, when you hear the gospel, you have a sense in your chest that you go, that is right. That's who he is. That's what he's done. Amen? That's right. And Paul says... We know who we are because God knows who we are. And we want to make sure that our ministry hits you in the conscience. In 2007, um, a well-known atheist uh, performer and magician named Penn Gillette had an individual come up to him at one of his shows. He's part of the, I guess, magical duo. Is that, is that, I'm not sure. 
How do you describe yourself if you're a magician? I'm not sure. Of Penn & Teller. They've got a Las Vegas show. They've been around for a long time. And Penn Jillette is a well-known and avowed atheist. And he knows that. He's very, very vocal about it. And he had an individual come up to him at one of his shows who was very kind, very... um, complimentary of the show and all of uh, what they experienced in the show that night. And that individual started talking to Penn Jillette about the Lord. And he actually decided to hand Penn a Gideon's Bible with the New Testament and Psalms. And and Penn Jillette was was, um, incredibly thankful for this individual. This is how this uh, encounter happened in his own words. Pendulette went on about how the man was very complimentary of his show and was very appreciative of those compliments. However, it was when the man presented him with a little New Testament that it also contained the Psalms in which the Gideons are known to provide to many people. Pendulette said, it was really wonderful. I believe that he knew I was an atheist, but he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes, Gillette continued. And he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... And there are atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. What does Paul just say? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, all through the beginning of this passage, this paragraph is going to be all about Paul's personal experience because it pertains to where his ministry is going and how his ministry has impacted the Corinthian church. But it's interesting to hear an atheist be able to articulate what Paul does here. Paul recognizes future eternity is ahead of me. Where I stand with God really matters. I will give an account for my life. Now, watch as Paul goes on. Look at verse 12. We're not commending ourselves to you again. Paul's already said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, saying you're the letter. You're the evidence of our ministry. The truth that you have come to the knowledge of Christ, that you have been saved, that you received the gospel message by faith. You're a letter by this, of the Spirit written on our hearts. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Remember in 2 Corinthians 1, remember how Paul said that you will boast in us as we will boast in you. The church will turn to the apostle who had brought them the saving message of, of uh, grace by faith. And as they stand in eternity future, the church will go, that's our apostle. And the apostle will go, here is the evidence of my ministry because they believed the message as it was preached to them. 
So Paul is returning now to the truth that there are individuals who try to infiltrate and try to draw their affection and attention away from the gospel message and to themselves. To say, you don't need to listen to Paul that much. He's not that impressive. He's not easy to listen to. He's hard on the eyes. Paul says, we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those, which means there are questions about Paul in the church. There's questions about whether or not Paul is who he says he is, whether or not he's impressive enough or rhetorically beautiful enough. He's been through all of this suffering, all of these beatings, these shipwrecks, this struggle, this uh, traveling, been on the run for his life. It doesn't look like he's living the victorious Christian life. I'm not sure we can listen to this guy. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to make sure that you boast in us, that you are able to give an answer to those people, watch what he says, who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. You ever look out at individuals that you work with and feel like they're doing better than you? You ever have situations in life where you look at other relationships or other people in their career and you feel like they're more influential, they're more popular, they have more followers, they're more significant, they're more impactful, they're making a bigger ripple in the world than I am. And these teachers who've infiltrated the church come with letters of commendation. They've got uh, uh, influential people who follow them. They've got a lot of people who applaud their teaching. They're very visible. They're very beautiful in their language. And they come in and they go, Paul's not that impressive, but let me tell you about me. I'm pretty impressive. You ought to listen to me more often than you listen to Paul. And Paul says, whoa. Whoa. That's not the way that we evaluate whether or not a ministry is valid or not, right? It doesn't matter how many followers you have. It doesn't matter how, many, how popular you are. The validation of the ministry comes from God and the accuracy with which the preacher, the teacher, the ambassador carries uh, the message. There are people who will boast with outward things. Literally, it says, to answer those who boast about faces and not about what's in the heart. Now, Paul's been building this all the way through this book, right? External things, internal things. Eternal things, transient things. Things you can see that are transient, things you can't see that are eternal. Paul's continuously building this tension through this book. That's why this graphic that Kenny made is fantastic. It's got two trees. One looks dead, one looks alive. The one, you remember? Have you guys seen the graphics that Kenny does? I'm gonna start emailing you personally with all the graphics that Kenny. It's a fantastic graphic because it shows this tension in the book between what we see and what really is. Verse 13. Now you with me so far? I want you to have confidence Church, I want you to be able to boast in us. Now watch what Paul does. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. That's a way of saying, if people think we're crazy, we're okay with that. God may lead us in ministry into places where people, uh, remember what he said earlier in the book, people smell our preaching and our teaching and they call it not the aroma of life, but the aroma of 
and they call it the aroma of death. There may be a time where people talk about our ministry and talk about who I am as an apostle and they say, here's the thing, Paul's crazy, you don't need to listen to him anymore. But on the other hand, if we're in our right mind, it's for you. There are people now who will listen to Paul and go, Paul, this is a message from God himself. Paul, this makes total sense to me. Remember the story I told you about the guy at Panera who I, was, I shared the gospel with and he leaned across the table and said, that's true. Nobody else said that, that guy said it. And he said, amen to that truth that you just told me. That's absolutely right. And Paul says, here's my reputation in the eyes of this church in Corinth. Some of you don't agree with me. Some of you don't like me. Some of you critique me because I wrote you a severe letter. Some of you want to confront me publicly and question whether or not I am who I say I am with the credentials I say I have. So, why do you think is Paul so free? Why do you think Paul is able to say, if people think I'm crazy, that's okay. If people say amen to my ministry, that's okay too. If I told you this week to go in tomorrow morning, start your first staff meeting that you're in tomorrow, and you start talking about angels and demons, you start bringing up the fact that you are a sinner saved by the grace of God alone, and that all who don't receive the truth of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for them will spend an eternity in hell prepared for Satan and his demons. I guarantee you that meeting will not last long. And all of us, Painting that picture right now will feel that tension in our chest of going, what is it that they're going to say about me? All of a sudden, I'm going to be that guy or that girl at work, right? And immediately, we start thinking about how our reputation is going to play out in the lives of people and the spheres of influence that we live, right? So what is it about Paul at this point that allows him to say, I don't care if they think I'm crazy, Or that they say, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Which actually began in Corinth, actually. Did you know that? Sliced bread. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Look at the next verse. Here's the answer to what makes Paul free. Wouldn't you like to be free from how much you think about you? Wouldn't you like that? To be gloriously released from ego? To, be, to live your life in such a way that it doesn't matter whether or not your reputation is influential or not in the eyes of people. To be so disconnected with that work that we do to make sure that we put on a happy face and we're respected by our peers. What if those metrics started to fall away in your life? Because I have those the same as you have those, right? We all have those. This inner dialogue that makes sure we want to be put together well. Look at verse 14, because here's the answer to that question. The answer to that, test, that tension in our own hearts. For the love of Christ controls us. Let me, I'm, I'm going to pause and be a little bit extreme. You will never, never be free of that inner conversation. Unless the truth of Christ's love for you lives in your heart. 
you will always be justifying. You'll always be working. You'll always be looking for recognition and for influence. You'll always be wondering whether or not you measure up unless the truth about Christ's love for you lives in the center of your being. You will never be free like Paul unless you understand that you are loved by Jesus like Paul says he is. So much so that the love of Christ doesn't just exist as an experience for Paul. Though there are two elements here, Paul's subjective experience of the love of Christ and the objective reality of his love, which we'll see in a minute. But Paul says the love of Christ literally constrains me, restrains me. The love of Christ is a straitjacket for my life. It's the singular focus. It's the singular motivation out of which I do and think and say anything. The reality that Jesus loves me now constrains my life in such a way that I am free from how people see me. Isn't that amazing? Pause right there just for a minute and reflect on the fact that Jesus' love for Paul frees him of the opinions of mankind. Can you imagine being that free? That it didn't matter what people thought, what people said, what people commented, whether or not you were influential or not, whether or not you were popular or unpopular. But Paul says the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. Here's the, the reality that Paul is about to share with you. The objective reality that has now centered his life on the fact that Jesus loves him. That one has died for all. One has died in the place of all. Why is it as a church that we can confidently preach the fact that Jesus died for you? Because Jesus is the center of God's plan. Jesus is the epicenter. You know what the epicenter is? The place where the, the uh, earthquake moves out? Jesus is the epicenter of God's plan to reconcile and love and serve and save sinners. And this reality that Christ's love has been demonstrated by Christ's death for people now totally constrains Paul's life. There's nothing else for Paul that is worth living except this reality. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now we talked last week about the death that you will die, right? But what Paul has just said here is that the cosmic time-space event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was also my death. We all, when we talk about faith in Christ, what you are doing is putting your faith in what Jesus has done for you. You're putting your faith in what Jesus, the death that Jesus died for you. And you're putting your faith and trust that when you, when he died, you died. And now you, when we raise people, when we uh, put people in the, what's it called, with the underneath and the up in the water? Thank you. We say that they are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new life. What does that mean except that the death that I deserve to die, Jesus died. And when Jesus died, my death actually happened because he received the penalty for my sins on the cross. The death that I deserved as a sinner, he died in my place. 
which is, watch this, evidence of the absolute stunning reality that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me because Jesus died for me. That's his point. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who what? Live. Are you still living? You want to have a life filled with purpose? So far you've got a life filled with freedom because Jesus loves you. Here's a life filled with purpose. Paul's experienced it. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. What's the central governing factor of every human in the universe? We all love ourselves. We all live for ourselves. Our ambitions are for ourselves. Our recognition, our influence, our popularity, our relative good looks are all for ourselves. But now something has come into Paul's life that has totally reoriented his perspective on his ego, his perspective on how he views himself, and now God has now given him a mission to live out. And that mission is an others-centered mission. An ambition not to live for Paul's sake, and not so much even to live for the Corinthians' sake, though we'll see that in a minute, but his sake, what he says, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the heartbeat of a Christian who is embraced and is now living out of the acceptance and love of Christ demonstrated in his death for us. Because I can experience the love of Christ. The inner monologue in my life becomes, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? Jesus, what, because you have evidenced such great love and died for me, how would you like me to speak to my spouse? How would you like me to serve others? How would you like me to plan my ambition into the future about my career? God, how would you like me to spend my money? How would you like me to, to parent my kids? How would you like me to speak up and have courage for the things that are true at work? Unless the love of Christ constrains our heart and becomes the pulsing reality out of which we live, everything we will do will be for ourselves or for duty. It will do, what we will do will be to protect ourselves, to make sure that we are comfortable and recognized and influential and have our reputation intact. Or it will be with some kind of moralistic tendency that I've got to because I ought to. Because I've got to be good, so I ought to be good. Do you see where Paul starts with? He starts with the absolute acceptance and the love of Christ that centers his heart. And then he is able to live for Christ. Are you with me so far? Now, you've seen Paul's experience and his identity shifted, right? Right? You see the freedom of not having to worry about what people think. The freedom of having a purpose that is greater than myself, but living now for Christ and what Christ has for me. The center of my life is that Jesus loves me so much that he died for me. Therefore, Jesus, how do you want me to live for you? Now, as you move through this passage, Paul is going to fade into the background to the very end. So we've seen what Christ has done for us and his love for us on the cross. And now what Paul is going to do is begin to move so that our gaze would be off of ourselves and would start to look at God. Look at verse 16. From now on, 
Was there a moment, is there a time in your life where you have come to the reality and the recognition that Jesus died for you? Because that's the epicenter in Paul's life. From now on, there was a time and space reality where my life shifted to embrace the truth that Jesus loved me, Jesus died for me, Jesus was buried for me, Jesus was raised for me. From now on, my life looks different. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Mankind has this terrible tendency to determine who's in and who's out. Right? At work, there are people that you want to be with and there are people you don't want to be with. People that if you sit across from them at lunch, you go, ah, I wish I was talking to someone else. Don't like, yeah, nobody, yeah, you're all quiet now, aren't you? I don't have those people. I am just a wonderful individual. I love everybody, Steve. Right? There are the people who like CrossFit and the, and the people who like donuts. Right? There are the people who, um, uh, you ever see two guys in a Jeep drive past each other? What do they do? Brother. How about the motorcycle guys? You ever see those? Everybody gives the deuce on the motorcycle, right? To the other guy on the motorcycle. We love doing this. It makes us feel so good about ourselves because we want to be in. And you know this in our culture. There's Republicans and there's Democrats. There's conservatives, there's liberals. There's men, there's women. There's those who are in, there's those who are out. There's those who agree with me and those who do not. And what Paul says is that the love of Christ has so changed the way he sees life that now he looks at life differently. Being accepted by the Son of God who died on the cross for me changes the way I see people. Do you believe that? Because that's a really big point. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to flesh. We don't evaluate on man's terms. That's the tension in the church. You've got leaders who come in who look at Paul and go, ah, he doesn't measure up to our standards, therefore we don't listen to him. And the church is tempted to do this. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says, you're acting in merely human ways when you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus, I'm of, we love to do this. We love to have our guys and those guys who we love and who we agree with, we identify with, and we feel like we're part of whatever. How many people went to Clemson? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. How about USC? Oh, you guys can't get together. Sorry. You guys got to sit over here, Clemson over here. Is that what we do in the church? There's no resource that the church has to be able to bring together people from rival colleges? We don't look at people according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Here's what commentators think that means. Remember, how do you think Paul viewed Jesus before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? He's a troublemaker. He's a Jewish carpenter preacher. And then he met Jesus and he understood who Jesus was. I don't think about Jesus in Jewish, ancient Near East, carpenter, blue-collar kind of ways anymore. I consider him as the one who will judge the living and the dead. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, literally it says this, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. 
So Paul, how does Paul look at people? What constrains Paul's ministry even up to this point? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The reason Paul is free emotionally and subjectively is because of the objective love of Christ that Christ accomplished by his dying for Paul. And now the love of Christ constrains Paul's ministry so much that it's the singular lens by which he looks at everybody. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Do you have a beard or not a beard? I don't care. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Do you have a million dollars in the bank or ten dollars in the bank? That doesn't matter to me. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Are you influential in your line of work? Do you have letters after your name? I don't care. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? See how annoying Paul is? But Paul, there's all this work I've done. Paul, there are all these degrees I have. Paul, I've accomplished so much in my life. Paul, I have a position of great authority and recognition in my line of work. I'm the expert in my field, Paul. We regard no one according to the flesh, though we looked at Christ that way before. Because if you're in Christ, you're the greatest truth about who you are is that you are new. See, a lot of times we look at Jesus and spiritual things in general. And we look at ourselves as being relatively put together, right? Because we evaluate ourselves purely on man-centered terms. I can run this fast. I can do these things. I can make this sale. I can accomplish this degree. I can do all of these things. And what I would really like Jesus to do is come alongside and make my life just a little bit, I don't know, 10%, 20% more successful. I'd like, my life isn't where I want it to be. I mean, I'm certainly not perfect. But if Christ could come along and make me, I don't know, different, I'd take that. If Christ would come along and he'd make me better, I'd like that too. But Paul says Christ doesn't capture your attention. He doesn't capture your perspective on your identity. He doesn't capture your purpose in life unless you recognize that Christ came not to make you different, but to make you new. Do you see how different they are? Do you see the tension in this passage between people who want to live according to all of the metrics of men? And Paul says, throw those away. What matters the most is whether or not you are new, whether or not you are a new creation, where Christ has changed you. You are you 2.0. They still use that term? The old has passed away. The new has come. Now, This language in Paul's relationship with Christ now begins to move because Paul's going to use a term called reconciliation. And this term he's going to mention five different times in the next few verses. And what he's going to say is that Jesus has done something to affect not a legal reality, though that is true. And there's other places in scriptures that talk about the legal reality. But what Jesus has done 
in Paul's life to reorient the center of who he is, to free him from the opinions and the evaluations of mankind, to allow his ego to fade into the background, to give him a purpose in his life that is enduring purpose and makes his life worth living, is found in how his relationship with God has been fixed. All this is from God. All this freedom, all this purpose, all this love, all this certainty and experiencing the love of Christ for me is from God. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. This is God's ambition. This is God's idea. The gospel is not man's ideas. If we sat around 2,000 years ago and thought, all right, let's figure out the gospel. It's, uh, I don't know, grace. I like grace. Grace is good. Let's do grace. Faith. That faith. I like faith. All of this, this subjective and objective reality is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Uh, if you're a, uh, this, this illustration will, will make sense to you in a minute. Uh, if you're married, inevitably, and if you're single, that's okay too. That's part of, uh, you'll get this. If you're married and somebody asks you, and I'll just apply this to the fellas in the room just for a second because you'll know what I mean in a second, ladies. You have, some, you have your buddy and he asks and you go, how's your marriage going? And you say, great. And every man who's married, does this. Because he's waiting to see how his marriage is doing. Because he doesn't even know. He's got to find out from his wife how his marriage is doing. Ladies, amen? Ladies, amen? Amen. I had a friend in college who had been through burying his dad and having several significant struggles in his life. And I would talk to him about spiritual things. And he would make the comment that he and God were, had their own little, had our own little bargain, our own little kind of relationship. And the thing that would always come back to mind in that is, okay, well, have you asked God? Do you know what God thinks about your relationship? And I would ask you, do you know what God says about your relationship with God right now. Because, hey, you can tell me anything about your relationship with God right now. You can say, hey, me and God are good. I do some good things. God's impressed. I'm pretty awesome. I'm young, I'm fast, I'm strong. Me and God are good. And what happens is people get lulled into thinking that their relationship with God is good because they aren't experiencing any particular struggle at the time. They're not, none of their sin patterns have come up. They've planted a lot of them, but they haven't sprouted out of the ground. So because they're relatively safe and secure or wealthy or accomplished, they think their relationship with God must match their physical life. And what I want to ask is let's define our relationship with God from God's side. Because where it matters way more what God thinks about our relationship than what I think about my relationship with God. Right? Amen. Way more. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Isn't that great? 
Now, whoever you are, you have had relationships that you don't want to address because they're hard. You have relationships that are difficult, that are going to take work to maintain, that are going to take work to fight for forgiveness and unity and reconciliation. And you know the weight of those conversations that come. You know how hard and difficult it is to work through relationships to get to a point of understanding and mutual forgiveness and mutual unity. And the beauty of this is that mankind does not seek out God, but God is the one who seeks out reconciliation with men. God's ambition and desire is to reconcile with mankind. This is the problem all throughout the Bible, is that mankind goes in search for everything else except God, and it's God's ambition to reconcile man. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, let me explain. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What does it mean to have a reconciled relationship with God? What does it mean for me and God to be on good terms? Look at what he says. Not counting their trespasses against them. There are two kinds of people when you get to the end of your Bible. There are people um, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then there are people whose deeds are written in the books and are judged according to the deeds that they have done. There's only two groups of people. One is a group of people whose sins God will never count against them. Can you, is that amazing? No sin will be attributed to me? None. From the time that I was born till the time that my heart stops, not one sin will be attributed to me. And God affected our reconciliation because God put away the list. You ever keep lists on people? Yeah, I could, but they ought to. Man, we could be real good if they would repent of the 38 things that I have on this list over here that they don't know about. And reconciliation with God means that God takes the list and he crumples it up and he throws it away. And he says, I will never count those sins against you. That's what a right relationship with God looks like. In Christ, that's what God was doing. In Christ, he was nailing the sin and the consequences and the wrath that those sins deserve on Christ So that now in Christ, all of my sins are wiped away. None of my sins are attributed and counted to me. That he was not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, why does this matter for Paul and the Corinthian church? He says this is the only message. This is the only person on whom the wrath of God fell. And now from that objective reality, Christ and his resurrection can offer freedom and forgiveness from sin so that your relationship with God might be based on how God no longer counts your sins anymore. The truth, and really the gospel confidence we have to be able to answer that question, where do I stand with God? Is my relationship with God good is answered in the affirmative. I am able to say yes to that question because Christ has reconciled me to God. He saved me. He died for me. 
He paid the penalty for my sin. He died in my place. Because of Jesus, my sins will never be counted against me. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone who speaks on behalf of another. Very easy to understand, right? Now we're coming back to Paul's ministry. What is Paul's ministry? Paul's ministry is a ministry of proclamation. That sins are no longer counted because Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see where Paul's ego is? It's nowhere to be seen. The singular thing that matters to Paul is whether or not you and God are in right relationship because of Christ. That's the driving pulse of his heart because Paul has tasted of it. Paul has said, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus reconciled me to God. And I have been given the ministry to go forward and to tell people, I don't look at your race, I don't look at your background, I don't look at your money. I give you a message of certain confidence that your sins can be wiped out and forgiven. You can experience the love of God. You can find purpose in your life. You can experience freedom from any of the mankind, man-centered metrics that are out there because Jesus loves you. Paul says, I know it. I've lived it. I'm an ambassador for this message. Be reconciled to God, not reconciled to me. The thing that matters to me is that you and God would reconnect and that you would experience the life-giving, glorious reality that Jesus loves you. Now, not counting sins means we're brought back to moral neutral, right? Think of all the sins that you've committed since yesterday. And in Christ, all of those are forgiven. So now we're at zero. You with me? Now we're treading water. We're not drowning the dead on the bottom of the pool. But now watch what Paul says to close this beautiful message that he's given to the Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who know no sin. Jesus experienced the death that every sinner deserves. Jesus experienced the wrath of God at sin for him. He was treated, Galatians says, that he became a curse for us. Him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Not only are your sins not counted against you because of Jesus' death on the cross, but what is given to you is the pure and spotless, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I never have to doubt in my prayers when I come in Jesus' name to God. Because I am seen as having my sins forgiven. I am seen as being given the righteousness of Christ. I'm seen as now being as righteous as Christ, as able to pray the same way Jesus is able to pray. To have the bold confidence to enter the throne room of God Almighty and not to be turned away, not to be critiqued, not to be pointed out of all of my failures, but to be completely forgiven, completely accepted, and welcomed face to face with the God of the universe. Why is it that the Christian can have confidence because of these things? Because Jesus died for me. Because Jesus loves me. Listen, the church is not, I don't know what kind of church experience you've had in the past. But every church 
is either a church that's filled with moralists who say we only let people in who believe and think like us. We only let people in who have the relative righteousness according to mankind's standards. And you'll find this in every church, that there's some subtext that controls the church that we're in, obviously, because we come to this church. And we want you to be in. I mean, really, be like us. But when you be like us, and you can find great fellowship and relationship in this church. So either a church is going to be filled with moralists who have lists, or the church is going to be filled with evangelists who talk about the good news that there's no sin that will ever be counted to me, that Jesus loves me and frees me by his blood, that I am welcomed and reconciled in my relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. That's the weight of this passage. And I pray that the love of Christ would so grip you today that you would be able to live free as Paul is, that you would live with new purpose, that the complete satisfaction that is offered to you on the cross by Jesus would penetrate into the deepest parts of who you are, and that you would free yourself from all of these lists, and that you, like Paul, would be an ambassador for Christ. Father, we need these reminders. We need the truths of Jesus to penetrate into our hearts because we're so prone to live according to the things that we see and the things that we feel. Father, I know for myself I'm so tempted to walk by sight and not by faith, to focus on things that are temporal and here and transient and not what is eternal. I'm so focused on keeping lists and trying to live according to some external standard rather than the glorious truth that my sins are not counted against me, but that Christ has effected a reconciliation and a healing of the relationship between me and you. I pray, Father, for every person in this room, every man and woman and child, that the love of Christ might penetrate to the deepest parts of who we are, that we might be a church filled with preachers of the good news, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We're so thankful this is true, how we need these truths to orient our hearts, to guide our conversations with one another, to serve those in our spheres of influence that you've given us to serve. Father, make us free. In Christ's name, amen.